everybody, it's Tanya Adleta back again with Recovering Church Girls, and I am so excited for this conversation. I think I actually start almost every episode that way, but seriously, I'm always so excited for these conversations, especially when I get to talk to a dear friend like Sarah Nannan. So first of all, hi. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so excited too. Oh my goodness. And I love this idea of Sarah is, there's so many different layers. Um, She is an author of Grief Unveiled, A Widow's Guide to Navigating Your Journey in Life After Loss. And she herself is the renegade widow. Uh, So Sarah, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thrilled to be here. All right. So let's just dive right in. When we talk about recovering church girls, what does that mean for you? Hmm. Well, the first time you told me that name, I know that everything in me lit up Mm. and it's an interesting thing because there's um, almost an immediate apology that comes with that because um, I had a really good life growing up and my life was really, really heavily influenced by the church. Mm. That was where I spent a lot of time. You posted the other day about Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday morning, prayer breakfast, Wednesday night, youth group. I was like, there was such a huge core of social and emotional learning for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was all I knew. So it was great. Um, until I grew up and was faced with a bigger, crueler world. Mm. And um, I had to sort of part ways with the way that I was taught things worked because more and more as I encountered a bigger world and encountered decisions that I had to make, I was feeling conflicted about, um, I guess the best way to say it is abandoning myself and my truth mm-hmm. for um, all the shoulds that came from the church world. Right. And it took a long time and um, burying my husband really to wake me up to the level of guilt and shame and fear that really dictated my decision making and who I was allowing myself to be in the world that really stemmed from what I was taught was good and worthy and lovable and safe um, in that world of church. So I guess that's the long answer to your lovely question about what does this idea of being a recovering church girl girl mean to me? And and, um, I'm so glad I'm doing it. Well, I was just going to say, so you can, guys can see, for those of you who are listening, you understand why I'm so excited about this conversation, because I know just enough to know that this resonates, and there's so many different layers when we talk about our self-worth, our identity, you know, not only who we are, but also who we choose to show up as, because yeah. sometimes those are very different things. When we get into all of that, you know, kind of ooey gooey stuff that really gets down to the core of who we are. First of all, I get totally lit up. So I'm like so excited about this, but also because I've had the great pleasure of working with you under the single parent summit. Um, and by the way, you know, if this all crosses over, that is totally fine too, because I think again, how we were raised and how that informed how we thought very much showed up in the kinds of wives that we were and how that then plays out for not only the marriage, but then now as parents, you know, what that looks like too. So again, just so many layers uh, to to be able to dig in from here. Yeah. And I think it's really cool. um, Not that anyone ever thinks it's cool to be divorced or a widow, but I think it's cool (laughs) that you and I can get together and jam on 
our marriage in a past tense sort of look because it's sometimes hard to really look at it for what it is when you're in it mm. and so we're both on the other side of it for different reasons um and it's not to say that it wasn't a you know painful uncomfortable journey but also we have the privilege of hindsight i guess to be able to, to name it a different way than maybe we would have when we were inside of it yeah so. absolutely Absolutely. So, okay, based on that sentence alone, I'm going to go ahead and rebrand this as a another one of our special episodes that gets to go to both Recovering Church Girls and the Single Parent Summit podcast. So uh, if you guys don't know each other in terms of audiences, there you go. There's your introduction. <laughs> so all of that to say, I love it. you know, I, I love what you said in the very beginning, this idea of there's almost an immediate apology that comes to mind for you because you had a, a beautiful, lovely childhood. And I love that you say that because I think that so quickly I can find the negative experiences that I've now identified being far enough removed from this. And I don't always remember the, the joy and the community and all of the positive things as quickly because I'm like deep in the work of, of working through all this stuff. So first of all, I love that you mentioned that. Yeah, I think it's important because um, it feels important for me to honor, you know, those formative years to honor my parents, to honor the, the youth group leaders um, who were showing up doing their best to help me become an amazing person. And I think they did a great job. I think that I just had to unlearn some of what they taught me mm -hmm. to really get closer to being that amazing person that I've always been. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it's, it's kind of that quintessential throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, type mm -hmm. of idea that there's really, there is so much good and there's so much good intentions, I think, in these kinds of spaces and communities and experiences. I don't believe, I'm checking myself as I say this, I, I don't think I believe that there is some, you know, little group of people who is the, you know, like kind of higher up type of thing and they're they're doing the maniacal laughs and and how are we going to control the population i don't think that that's necessarily happening i do wonder though if at some point in time in history that did happen and totally all of the decisions that were made then got carried down from generation to generation and there's just a narrative that has been perpetuated this entire time based on perhaps a group of white men um in mm. a little back room somewhere yeah, I'm, I'm really <laughs> glad you went there. I think that's an important thing to consider. And I think part of what's become so toxic in modern day religion is that we're applying really outdated ideas to the modern day and adhering really rigidly to it. So if you mm -hmm. just look at some of the um, dichotomies in current religion, um, you know, people point to the Puritans and the way that, you know, the way that they were, but I think it goes even further back. And, you know, you can agree with me or not, but if you want to look at history for what it is, religion is something that we've really utilized to control um, the people to work together to be a good community that could survive, right? Mm -hmm. um, and now that's not to say that there wasn't spirituality involved in that, but if you really examine it, um, and there's some really excellent books and podcasts and explorations about this with people who know a lot more than I do about these things, um, it's a really interesting thing and it can be jarring to look at because it, it sort of challenges these beliefs that you've built as your foundation. I can sing a Bible song about that. Um, <laughs> we've built this foundation under our life about this is how the world is and this is how reality is and this is how it works. And when someone starts to poke at that, we get pissed. 
mm-hmm. right? Because it really, it makes us feel rattled. Because right. if that's real, if it's real that at some point in history, the government and the church were working together to create rules under the name of God um, to get the population to behave and to mm-hmm. cooperate so that the, the kingdom could survive and prevail. And then like, don't even get into the crusades, but <laughs> that's a scary thing mm-hmm. because it really, it challenges what we choose to believe in when we don't always look at the whole picture of what we're actually believing in. And so I think it's important to, when we look at religion, um, we need to examine it because I don't think as we grow up, we go back and revisit and be like, hmm, why is it that I believe that? Well, there's a Bible verse that says that. Okay, great. But why else? And how is that really showing up as true in the world? And do we actually believe that? Right. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned the Crusades. No one has mentioned that yet in our episodes, but I remember as a child hearing about the Crusades and not being able to reconcile it in my mind and just not understanding how is it possible that those kinds of atrocities could be done in the name of God. Like I just, I didn't get the connection between war and rape and pillaging in the name of evangelizing. Like it just, you, you were clearly a much more evolved child than I was because on my (laughs) end, I was hearing it and believing that these were like benevolent spirit guided crusades that needed to happen to get rid of the bad people. And I like, Mm. that's the scary thing that happens when we involve, you know, church and state and history and we make them into one big pot of soup is like, how do we turn what really happened into a whole nother story? How do we take this atrocity, this terrorism, Mm -hmm. and make it acceptable because God said so? Like, that's not so. But I didn't get that. And that's that's part of the problem, I think, when we're in the the vein of recovering church girls, Mm -hmm. is when we're telling the stories about what happened, when we're talking about the way things are, our little people who don't have the capacity yet to have those deep reflective moments and go, wow, that's really interesting. Like you did. I didn't. Um, (laughs) I I couldn't see it and go, wow, a bunch of people were getting killed and raped Mm. and pillaged, like that whole thing. I I didn't have the tools to translate that into like reality and say like, wow, I don't actually agree with that. To me, I just heard, this is what they did in the name of God. And I was like, good for them. Those are the good guys. (laughs) God was on their side that day. Well, and I love this idea of like the good guys and the bad guys, because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we're both, we can both easily like geek out on the positive psychology thing and getting into the way that our brains work. And that's just something that we both enjoy. Mm-hmm. So we know this idea that our brain is always wanting to categorize things between either being good or bad. Am I safe yes. or unsafe? And that has definitely translated for me. And I think was really held up as a virtue within the church organization, within the community as well, because there becomes this exclusivity piece where it's like, we're going to build these walls around the church. We're going to say that the church is for everyone, but really it's not. It's only for the people who believe the way that we believe. And if you don't believe even just a smidge, outside of that, or I should say, if you believe other than than those things, then you're outside of the walls. And Mm -hmm. so there becomes this us versus them kind of breakdown that again, very much keeps us, you know, polarized and insulated from the world in which we could draw other clues to then say, hey, wait a second. 
I remember feeling really conflicted about this in high school, especially because I was old enough then to start making my own decisions socially about who I was friends with. And I had one really great group of friends who I went to church with 18 times a week and they were great kids. But I was also friends with um, some gay kids and some kids who were in drama club who smoked weed and had sex. And I was also friends with some jocks who partied and did, you know, like who did things that I did not do. But what was interesting was when we were together, um, not participating, I was not participating in those things because I was way too scared to uh, explore any of that, which is a whole another thing we can talk about later, shame and guilt and fear of exploration. Mm. Um, I was like, these people are really interesting and they're really smart and they have different perspectives on reality than I do, but they make more sense to me in a lot of cases than what I think I believe in. And so I found myself being drawn to being around them because there was somehow more permission for me to be curious, for me to have these bigger conversations for um, Jesus not to be the explanation behind everything necessarily, to ask the bigger questions. And um, that sort of transitioned me into this space of examining my church family with a new lens of curiosity. And, and what I found ultimately was the reason why I stopped participating in organized religion. Hmm. Because I realized that in a lot of cases, my friends who were not labeled as church kids um, were ultimately, in my view, better, more real, truthful, vulnerable, caring people. Mm. So the people who I was, you know, influenced by and spending time with socially inside the church did things for reasons that were fueled by guilt and shame and fear and, you know, proving that you were a good person. Mm-hmm. And, and these other people who did not attend, you know, church and had a different lens on the world their motivations were coming from like this, this pure place in their hearts. And I, I couldn't unsee some of the hypocrisy that I started seeing, which caused me to reevaluate. And that just meant when I went to college, I stepped back and I was like, what would happen if I stopped going to church? Nothing happened. I was just gonna say, so what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I never actually went back. Well, I went a few times. I tried really hard and and it felt, um, I felt like I was playing a part in a role in a play that I knew really well, but it, um, it felt forced and theatrical. So I didn't, Mm. I haven't gone back. That is, I think the third time today alone that the idea of the theatrical production has come up in these kinds of conversations. So that is, that's interesting. There's definitely something, uh, I think that is universal in uh, a lot of those experiences of when once you've stepped away and once you see things, uh, ironically enough, I think of the scripture uh, where Jesus talks about lifting the veil. Like, I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many times I have scriptures that come back to mind that I feel like really are getting to the exact heart of what we're talking about, which then brings me back to this whole idea of maybe the church itself is the one that really kind of fucked all this up. Like, maybe if it was just... And, and I'm not saying for sure, I'm just saying maybe, that if it was just the word of God with our own individual experiences yeah. with that, I wonder if this could be a very different experience. I wonder, mm-hmm. 
if maybe we wouldn't have the foundation of the fear and the guilt and the shame. And I definitely want to talk about that more, especially as it yeah. relates to us as women. And we've heard a lot of the guy stories and we definitely want to be open to non-binary as well. But I feel like there's something specific mm-hmm. about a woman growing up in this environment as it relates to the fear and the shame and the guilt, because mm-hmm. everything that we then become you know, in our identity, the the lack of self-worth, feeling like all of our value is in the role of some form of servitude, whether that is to the husband or the church as a whole or, you know, whatever it is that we're responsible for, we're never just responsible for ourselves, first of all. And then there becomes this codependency that is almost like non-negotiable. There is no way. Well, let me let me rephrase that. Hold on. Can't go for the absolutes. I haven't seen anyone yet go through these kinds of experiences without having some form of codependency in their world that they then have to unlearn. Mm-hmm. Well, it, the first thing I'm thinking of is the fact that in the church, as you're describing it, and as I grew up in, um, God is a man, and he is someone outside of me who is mm-hmm. in a very fatherly role who um, I am supposed to please with my behavior. Mm. And just right there, it's like, you can go ahead and drop the mic because yeah, right, right there. There's so much there. So everything for me growing up was about being good, you know, so we can get to heaven. But like more than that, I think the goal was really so that, you know, we can be pleasing to God. And I really um, felt the anxiety of that and the pressure of that, particularly in my teenage years. Um, when it came to sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I think it's easier when you're a little girl and your job is to like, let's obey your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a whole another thing when your body's supposed to be a temple and you're supposed to be chaste and, and save yourself for your husband that God will provide for you. Um, I, I'm noticing that I make a strange voice when I'm talking about the God Which rules. I so. love because it just, I mean, first of all, like fits so perfectly. And again, there's so many different layers to everything that you've just mentioned mm-hmm. almost in passing. But I think that's a really important thing to pay attention to because how much do we experience in passing, you know, I'm kind of like mm-hmm. air quoting this, that we never even really spent any time on to really dig deep and what does that mean? There was just such yeah. this blanket acceptance. Uh, everything that you're saying, I'm like nodding my head. I'm going, well, yeah, of course, because of course that's the way that it was. Yeah. Yeah, this is um, this is really ripe territory. And I think I always like to come back to, you know, proactive and, and looking forward. And so I started with this, this idea of God as a man outside of me. And what I've come around to in my in my present day, after a lot of work and unlearning, is this this idea that divinity God resides within me, mm. um, not as an outward expression, but that each of us actually have this divinity in us, and that now I you know I hear God's word in its purest form without the connotations of the church really as this um, this wisdom from our inner knowing, mm-hmm. right? It's no different than the Buddhist philosophies. It's no different than any of you know the major religions in the world, it all comes back to how can I be in integrity with my highest and best self? How can I be in alignment with my community? How can I be of service to people um, without abandoning myself and trapping myself into the shell of a body who by a rote follows these rules because I said so? 
And that has been such a healing experience for me to reclaim that power that I didn't know I gave away all those years ago. Yeah. And to have a little bit more of an autonomous approach to life mm. and to figuring out who I was separate from all of those filtration systems that I had developed and curated all of those years. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much of what you just said that resonates with me, especially your your viewpoint and your philosophy when it comes to the idea of divinity within us. That took me some time to get mm -hmm. to. And I don't know about you, when I chose to leave the church, there was a piece of me so first of all, I should say, in case you don't know already, I am the twice divorced wedding planner. So of course there's, you know, a little bit of a joke there, but even stepping outside of the wedding industry that I'm, I'm just not as involved in anymore, that's yet another piece of my identity that I have to choose what to do with. Mm -hmm. Putting me back in that moment, I chose to leave the church at the end of the second marriage. The process of the first marriage ending was brutal absolutely devastating all of my hopes and dreams and i'm the one that chose to end the marriage you know it, it still i still had to go through the grieving process of giving up on those dreams and ideals and again how it related to my identity because here i was trying so desperately to be the good christian wife mm -hmm. and lost myself in the most dramatic and tangled way during the course of that marriage so that was a bit of a process in and of itself and then somewhere in the midst of that there was a second marriage that lasted a whopping six months and one day and of course there's a story for that but mm -hmm. when you put all of the pieces together, you know, it's it's the idea that we are multifaceted people. And I, I come back to that often in these conversations because we can't be exactly who we are consistently all the time in the sense that we're always learning something new. We're always experiencing something new. So we are constantly growing and changing. And sometimes what we're learning is actually what we need to unlearn and then how that shapes who we then become. So it's just so mm. many different layers to all of this. Absolutely, and I, I wanna honor what you said in there in the middle of attempting to grieve that first marriage, which you did not have permission to grieve because you were the one who left and asked for it in the first place. And so, you know, there's a whole nother layer of repentance required of you because you mm. asked for this, why are you grieving? You should mm. be like skipping in the streets. And you know, this idea that, um, I think the unallowable grief is probably the most painful because there's no space for it in our social structure to, um, to hold that or to honor that with you. Mm. But moving even further into um, what you said about unlearning is this idea of what I talk about as unbecoming to become. Mm. And I think we all, um, we require some sort of initiation for that to actually happen. I think most of us, we go through life and, you know, we're, we're sort of going through the motions. We go to church every Sunday because we go to church every Sunday because that's when church is and it's on Sunday. So we go. Um, and so we keep doing it. And, and we have this unconscious attachment to that makes us good and worthy and respectable people and contributing members of society and all that. We don't think about that. It's just Sunday. So we go. And similar to your marriage and to my marriage, was, you know, we were in this marriage and we were doing this thing and we were, we were doing whatever it took to be invested enough to be a good wife and to be mm -hmm. a good woman. And, you know, they ended in different ways, 
but at the same time, your divorce it says first and second and um the death of my husband were this like really pivotal initiation where we were faced with our reality our mortality our god stories um and bigger than that i think is even like those limiting beliefs and the fears of what will happen what will become of me who am i now because of this label and i think that goes back to honestly i think it's informed by the church and the teachings of the church and what it means to be a widow and what it means to be a woman who is, you know, divorced. And there's some really unconscious bias that we were taught and modeled and even mentored into adhering to, which I didn't really know about until I was on the other side of it, until I was the, the widow mm-hmm. and I was hearing all of these judgments and all this shame go through my own head. I was putting it onto myself and I was saying they, the proverbial they must think that I'm, you know, fill in the blank. And on some deeper inquiry, I realized I was my most harsh critic Mm -hmm. and I was using the same judgments on myself that I had unknowingly been casting on everybody else. So I had judged all the people who had been divorced. I had judged all the people who were parents who did it differently than me. I had judged all the people who had dead husbands because I thought I knew what that meant about them. Mm. And now that I was wearing this Scarlet W as a widow in the world, I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize that's what I thought was true about all those other people. And now here I am that person and I'm realizing it's so not real. Yeah, yeah, oh my gosh, I, oh, I love that. And I can resonate in so many ways. And I think they, the the idea of pain as catalyst and the initiation that you mentioned i think that's a beautiful way to describe it because i wonder if we hadn't had these very difficult experiences would we have become who we are now or at least you know in the same way i think it's a question that that is worth asking just simply so that we don't simply repeat, you know, wash in, wash out, day in, day yeah. out, in, you know, the whole idea. I, I think that on some level, we probably both were on a path to evolve in this direction. But I don't actually think that anything short of burying my husband of 14 years would have actually woken me up to the level of, um, of this depth and perspective that it has brought I mean, maybe if I had lived to be like 420, it would happen. But um, I, I think that it would have been a slow, steady progression. But inside the parameters of the way things were, there were limits on on how far, how deep, how wide it could go, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's a great question to ask. But I think it's really more important to look back and honor that this really painful, intense miserable path of grief on on both of our parts and you know the unbecoming the unraveling Mm. and then this process of becoming once more a new form a new shape I think it's important to honor that and and honor where it's brought us because it's really easy for everyone in the world who has something hard happen in their life which by the way it happens to all of us so if you think you're special you're not just happens in different forms with different labels and different meanings and different struggles. But it's, I mean, everybody's got 
cancer or a dead husband or a divorce or a child with special needs or they're losing their leg or you know they've been a prisoner of war like everybody's got a hard thing and without um comparing them or making a hierarchy of whose life is harder i think if we can acknowledge that every single person is being offered regularly this opportunity to look up and to pay attention in a new way and to grow and to evolve um if we're willing to do that really scary renegade act of paying attention in a whole new way, we, everything becomes possible. And so I will say the thing you're not supposed to say is I'm grateful that this happened to me because of who I've become. Mm -hmm. I know for sure I am a more capable of love person. Mm -hmm. I am a less judgmental person. I'm more empathetic person and I'm way, way paying attention to my life now and I used to be sleepwalking and taking it for granted and so thank you life for this really hard to digest lesson that I was able to learn at a young age so that I didn't have to wait until I was 98 to have perspective on what's actually important on my deathbed yeah yeah absolutely and I wonder if you had a similar experience I found that once I could get to the point of the silver lining like you mentioned, I was so grateful that everything unraveled the way that it did. And I could always find a silver lining in any of these, you know, moments. It wasn't until probably a good five, six, seven, eight years before I could really embrace all the layers of the pain and the grief. Like I, I thought that I did, I kind of grazed over. I mean, the first, you know, the first transition period, that was very difficult. I was, you know, on my knees in the bathroom sobbing, like you, you can't not have some level of grief, but I think at some point in time, I wasn't going as deep. And I really, I started to kind of glaze over things again. And it wasn't until really committing to the work of recovering church girls that I've had to peel back layers that I thought I dealt with and Mm -hmm. I'm getting like all of these triggers again you know from these conversations and all these different moving pieces and I'm like oh man I thought I already did this yeah that's (laughs) the interesting thing about this evolution of self is that there's always another layer and um, I'm a life coach and so my clients often want to ask me like, how long did that take you? And I'm like, well, it doesn't really work that way um, because I'm still finding new layers. You know, there's, you're not done ever. And I think that's part of the human experience is are we willing to continue to peel back the layers and examine what's there instead of going numb, instead of going back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And that's really been the beautiful lesson for me is that as soon as I'm aware of that trigger or that layer, I'm like, all right, which coach am I hiring for this one? Because I'm not willing to sit around and wait or give it time or let it percolate or let it, you know, go back to sleep in me. I want to explore it because every time you said a silver lining, which I don't really like that word, but you can totally use it. For me, it's an opportunity. Mm. I see in all of these difficult times, these tragic experiences, these uncomfortable conversations, an opportunity to examine, like, who am I in this moment? And, um, Again, something you said earlier about, can I be the same person all the time? Can I be the same person with my man, with my kids, with my parents, with my friends, with this podcast interview, with my yoga clients, with the man at the grocery store, 
and the Uber driver? Like, can I be the same person? And I think that's bringing this full circle back to something that I didn't used to be. I was a very compartmentalized person and I now would describe my younger self as a chameleon. Mm. I could walk into any room, immediately size up the social rules and the normative behaviors and the level of um, language that was tolerable here and then conform immediately without effort, without even conscious awareness that I was doing it. I could be the person who could hang with the jocks, who could hang with the drama kids, who could hang with the church kids, who could be in a room of adults. I knew immediately how to conform to wherever I was to fit and be good. And what I've since unlearned is, can I let go of that? And I still have that awareness. It's constantly um, a, a work in progress for me. But I'm so much more aware now of like, wow, I'm really triggered. Wow, I feel really, you know, in, I feel the impulse to to prove myself. I feel the need to be liked or respected. I feel like I need to be funny so that this group can tolerate me. Um, and instead of learning to choose what's actually most true for me so that I can learn how to be just one person instead of what people want or need me to be in any one situation. Yeah, I love that. And I can, once again, I can definitely relate. And I think that the, the idea of the conformity piece, I think there might be some pieces of that that just become, you know, kind of our our natural human tendencies. And I also wonder if there is a deeper piece at play that brings us back to the church culture, because so much of the external rules that we're given really drives the point of conformity. It's it's not the idea of, you know, don't, uh, what was the, the expression? Don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't go with boys who do, like something <laughs> like that. You know, I haven't said that in, you know, 25, 30 years. Um, but just that idea of the rules that we were meant to keep, sometimes we're just simply fear-based because mm -hmm. our parents or the elders in the society didn't want us to, you know, get hurt. Uh, but then I think also there is this piece you mentioned earlier, the fear, the shame, and the guilt around exploration. And I loved that you mentioned, and thank you for your vulnerability, that you started to question a lot of this when it came to your sexuality, as far as like it's that same time period that you really started to question the things that you were told. Because first of all, you're not the first person on this podcast who has said exactly that. It was the time where things were starting to cross over that mm -hmm. the, you know, the veil was lifted, so to speak, in the idea of like, well, wait a second, if that's true, then that must mean that that might be true too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really valuable to, to go back to that little t-shirt that you said, don't drink, don't dance, whatever it was. Um, the implicit or else that wasn't said, but was mm -hmm. really heavily felt. And I think that was what really struck me powerfully each time wasn't that I actually thought drinking or smoking or dancing or hanging out with boys who did was bad. It was the or else that was implicit to that, that I was totally terrified of because mm. the or else was you're out of the club yeah. or else you're a bad girl or else there's no place for you here or else we know you're untrusty, untrustable and unworthy. And the or else for me was the piece that kept me so tightly controlled and conforming so carefully and meticulously the or else terrified me and um to the point that um it really impacted my sexuality within my marriage 
-hmm. because you know that pulling back that thread on exploring and experimentation and sexuality I was so so deeply attached to this idea that my chastity was my worth mm -hmm. and I thought you know great if I save myself for marriage someday when I finally do get around to having sex it's going to be amazing <laughs> um and it's not to say that it wasn't but it took me probably I'm trying to remember four or five years before I even got to the point where I really was capable of softening and being vulnerable enough to surrender to the experience. And it wasn't until I had birthed four babies and buried my husband before I really got to the place where I was comfortable enough in my skin with myself and far enough away from that guilt, shame, and fear of my own sexuality and the fact that I had a vagina, mm -hmm. that I was actually able to experience ecstasy and sexuality, which is a really scary thing to say out loud. Hello, millions of people who have said out loud. <laughs> yeah, I totally get it though. And I, I think, um, I love what you mentioned, the idea of bringing our, our worth back to our virtue you know, and I'm using the air quote and the idea of virtue, because that in and of itself, there was this, I don't know how to even describe this, but this idea that we are supposed to remain pure until we get married. And then all of a sudden we are supposed to instantaneously, instantaneously become the sex goddess. Yes. And of course we have no idea what the hell we're doing. Which is um, our innate purpose to begin with. Oh, well, yes. They've just been preparing true. us for that. Yes. Yes. But in such a way that sex is all bad, unless it fits only in this tiny little parameter, because mm -hmm. then once you get to that, then it's magical and it's wonderful. But it was only ever under this parameter. Yeah. And it's just that idea of, you know, sex negative as a philosophy. I didn't even know what that meant until probably a good, like, five years ago. And mm -hmm. I'm like, well, what do you mean sex negative? I didn't, I, I don't even know what that means. They're like, well, you've got sex neutral, sex positive, or sex negative. Like, what was the philosophy with which you were yeah. raised? And I'm like, I guess I'm going to have to go with sex negative. Like, I never even got the birds and bees talk. You know, it was just, it just didn't exist because mm. then the next yeah. conversation was, here's your purity ring, you mm -hmm. know, and with that idea of the, the goal is to trade this puppy up for a diamond and then all yes. of a sudden everything is going to change. Yes. Which goes so much deeper than church and goes back to like, you know, women and our roles and the patriarchy word and like the fact that it is still normative in our world to grow up into a woman who believes her life and her happiness and her worth are all wrapped up in that diamond ring. And it's really, really um, been brought to light in the work that I do with widows. Because mm. man, we are so attached to that damn diamond ring. It brings <laughs> so much, so much anxiety and fear and shame and guilt and, um, like the, the meaning of that symbol is just fascinating. So I did this experiment. Um, eventually I decided to take my, my wedding ring off. It was time. My body kind of told me like my finger got swollen up and red. And I was like, okay, it seems like this is the time to take it off. And I felt great about it. But a year later, I was like, I'm curious what would happen if I just put it back on, hmm. knowing that my husband is still dead, knowing that I'm still unmarried, like knowing that I'm a still widow, and I'll be damned if I didn't put that puppy back on. And instantly I felt 
an elevated status. I felt mm. special. I felt lovable and worthy and chosen and untouchable. And it's amazing that we have created this industry of valuing women by presenting them this diamond ring, which really just means that I'm someone's property. If we go back to the very beginning of the origins of what marriage was to begin with, um, and I'm engaged, engaged, which is interesting, because now I have a diamond ring back on my hand, <laughs> and I have a different relationship with it this time around. Mm. But um, I think we're being groomed from the beginning to be good wives and good women, and that means being pure. That means being ready to have lots of babies. That means being... Um, selfless too mm. and this idea of what does it mean to be a mother and what does it mean to be a wife and how we've somehow made it into being like a martyr who's supposed to enjoy it is mm -hmm. really fascinating um so we, i just went around in like 18 different circles but <laughs> this, this topic of how we teach our little girls their worth and how much um how much value is put on my vagina being on touched until I was married is like kind of concerning by myself included right you know I think that's like the biggest thing is like I was also so disconnected from my own body and my own sexuality um and I had to have a bunch of babies before I even figured out how amazing and powerful that thing down there was mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and the idea of this disconnection I feel like that was a huge piece for me and again I would go so far as to say that we were groomed to disconnect from ourselves yes. whether that was sexually whether that was physically like I remember even just recently I got so triggered someone in my family said something along the lines of well I don't live by my feelings mm. and it was this catchphrase for me growing up in my teenage yeah. years this idea of that you know I may feel physically ill but I can't tell you that I don't feel well because then I'm perpetuating it now I mean you know me I am like all about the positive psychology piece but at the same time there is a truth-telling and an authenticity that goes hand in hand with that. You can't separate the two because otherwise you get this ridiculous disconnect that again has to be unlearned. I can't yeah. tell you how long it took me to reconnect all the pieces of myself and to recognize that my body and I were actually on the same team. Mm, I fought yeah. against my body for so long and when I would get sick and I ended up with chronic fatigue and all sorts of other crazy things, but whenever that would happen, I would say things like, oh, my body is giving out on me mm -hmm. or, you know, all of that kind of a thing. I'm just like, getting old. Right. It's just like, well, wait a second. Mm -hmm. Where have I let my body down? Where have yeah. I overcommitted my energy? Have I had enough water? When was the last yeah. time I ate? You know, like I am terrible mm -hmm. still to this day about eating at a regular yeah. time before I, you know, fall apart. But all of these things, I feel like there was, there was some piece that was important to moving the narrative forward that I needed to be separated from myself so I wouldn't know how powerful I was when yes. I put all the pieces together. And I think it goes even deeper than that, that um, as women were taught that being emotional, that being needy mm. um, is a bad thing. So this is on the other side of, I'm in widowhood now, I'm on the other side of an attempt at a relationship and I'm with a relationship coach just working on me because why do I keep repeating this pattern? And my coach says to me, it's really fascinating that you've been existing on scraps and totally okay with it. 
And she asked me two questions. What are you no longer willing to tolerate? And what are you ready to require in a relationship? And immediately the like nine-year-old in me was like, oh, hell no. Ain't nobody going to date her. Ain't nobody going to love a woman who has needs and requirements and shit like that. I'm not doing that. No one's going to be in a relationship with me. Nobody likes girls like that. And so I've had to like in my healing journey from, you know, recovering from church, recovering from this idea of what it means to be a good wife and a good widow and now finding myself even beyond all of those labels, who am I just me, the person mm -hmm. without all of these categorizing um, limitations, essentially, as woman and wife and mother and widow, the person Sarah, mm. can I be tenderly curious about examining what it is that I need? Mm. And what do I want? And what am I feeling? And what do I not want? And it's amazing that I've, I can trace this all back to at some point in my childhood being taught that feeling too much was not okay, mm. that talking about how you were feeling too much was not okay, that needing too much was not okay, that wanting too much was not okay, and that not wanting something was not okay, which is probably also showed up in a lot of really unhealthy, damaging ways in my life, um, you know, just how I've chosen, but also even within sexuality. So it's a really fascinating thing that so much of what I'm learning and healing in this, in this grief journey and the layers of evolution that have happened beyond what I would call grief, because I think it's evolved into something else now. Um, it comes from that recovery thing that we're talking about here. Wow, where did that come from? Where did that come from? That's something that I've believed my whole life because I can feel it in like my, my bones and my liver that, that that feels like a universal truth that I'm now unlearning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would even go so far as to suggest that what we were told to either want or not want or what was acceptable or what was not acceptable, I'd even go so far as to suggest that that was incredibly influential in creating an environment that was friendly towards rape. Because when sure. you look at the whole Me Too movement and all the rest of it, those of us that were in the church, we were not surprised at all to see all of the things that came out. And even now, you know, we still every day, it feels like there's some new thing that is being unveiled and, and you know, uncovered about trauma that occurred within yes. the Catholic church or within any other sort of religious experience. And I feel like for those of us that were there, now looking back, we can say, oh, wait, that goes to that goes to that. Like we can see the connecting points. When we were in the experience, I don't know that we had any sort of depth or scope to understand that my no means no, my yes means yes. Yeah. And I am completely okay to say yes or no. I don't have to just go along with something because this person, you know, even just down to the idea of like the worth and the value, mm -hmm. because he likes me, doesn't that mean that I now owe him? Yeah, I should want this. Right. I should like this. And uh, yeah, this is like such a powerful, important thread that feels really important for us to, as a whole collectively, like really take some ownership of because I can identify with that little girl um, who was, you know, there were people who were in charge and they were supposed to do what they were, like they were good people, so they wouldn't do anything bad. 
Um, now, it's interesting that my, my involvement in the Me Too movement happened much later in my adult life. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's fascinating on the other side of that experience to see even then as an adult mm-hmm. with what I would say is a pretty huge level of confidence with a pretty loud voice, I still felt incapacitated by that old story mm-hmm. of um, don't have needs there's no no here like it it was happening to me and I had no uh no right to say the otherwise um and so it's a really fascinating thing to now be teaching my kids I have two boys and two girls so it's different but the same for both of them this idea of no means no and you know what if grandma wants to give you a hug and you'd rather give her a high five that's totally cool I'm never gonna make you hug someone if you don't feel like hugging them there's a lot of other ways it can be with that person and also you know it was an interesting thing as as my little ones like little little like we explore in the bathtub right little boys are like oh wow there's a penis down there what's that do (laughs) um and then little girls are like oh wow there's a vagina down there what's that do and it was interesting how I caught myself allowing it for the boys and not allowing it for the girls. Interesting. And so I had to like catch my words and be like, hey, there's times and places where that's allowed, not at the dinner table, but like (laughs) the bathtub or when you're in your room by yourself, totally cool. I never had that permission. And I think that's part of it is if, if we already, if we understand our own bodies, if we understand what the experience of pleasure is, we can also understand what is not fucking pleasure. Right. And we can say no when it's not okay, mm-hmm. when it doesn't feel good, when it doesn't feel safe. It's weird how those signals can get confused. Mm-hmm. And exactly. um, anyway, this is a long rant on this topic, but I'm so glad you brought it up because I think it's really important for us to reclaim that and break that pattern for our children and for the future because that has, our voice has been so taken from us and this mm-hmm. idea of being good and um not being the hysterical, needy, emotional, overreactive woman that is still such a freaking perpetuated thing in the world today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned about how you're parenting your kids in this, because I think that that's something that was probably one of the first pieces that I saw in myself. I was saying the same things that were said to me. Yes, it comes out of your mouth and you're like, oh no, go back in. Who's right? It's like, you know, when my kids are probably like 12 and 13 and I'm saying things and I'm like, I don't actually agree with what I just said. And I have to, you know, have that conversation with them. I'm like, guys, give me just a second. Like, let me, let me think about this. Let me be really intentional about Mm -hmm. what I want to say because I don't want to say what I just said. So yeah, I love that you mentioned that. I think that in some ways, I feel like there's an opportunity to reparent ourselves Mm, by the way in which we parent our children because we are a different version now and we have Mm -hmm. more information and more experience and all the rest of it. So there's an intentionality that we can then apply to ourselves just as much as the next generation. Absolutely. And I, that's so true, particularly for me. My oldest daughter is, um, she appears to me the way that I remember myself um, in my most pure form, mm-hmm. like wildly creative, really, really strong and powerful and needing to be at the top of the tallest, whatever I could climb. Um, constantly making things, constantly singing. And I don't know that I have um, a conscious memory of anyone telling me not to. I'm sure that was a part of it, but um, 
somewhere along the way, I was really sterilized mm-hmm. into a more, you know, acceptable, appropriate form. I will tell you that the word inappropriate is like one of the most triggering words for me in my memory, because that was the explanation for the things that I wanted and experienced and shared. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that made me feel like I was inappropriate, right? And so I'm now really reflecting on that memory of how I felt like too much, too loud, too bright, too colorful, too emotional, too whatever. And I have a daughter who is all of those things. And it, it goes between this like very triggered response because my first visceral response is that's not safe mm-hmm. because it's inappropriate because somebody said so. And my second answer is, is that true? Because my goodness, now my nine-year-old has pink hair. (laughs) And I don't think that's inappropriate because when I saw her face light up, when she got the beauty salon chair turned around and she saw herself with pink hair, luminous, Mm. right? She was totally in alignment with her truth in that moment. And I could have said, it's inappropriate for a nine-year-old girl, an eight-year-old girl to have pink hair. But is that true? Or is it just this really powerful declaration that she is willing to be seen in the world and that she's creative and magical? That's more true to me than it being inappropriate. And so I'm constantly reparenting myself through her, I think, most of all, because I I feel like she's most similar to, to the younger me. And what a gift to be able to give her permission to be exactly who she is and how she is. Absolutely. It's so interesting, your your response and your relationship with the word appropriate or inappropriate, because oh it's the gosh. exact same thing for me. And there was some situation, I forget exactly what it was, but my daughter said something about, well, that's inappropriate. And just the way that she said it was seriously echoing someone else's voice. It wasn't hers. It wasn't mine. And I don't remember the context of the conversation, but it I had a visceral reaction in that moment and it was all I could do to not just completely <laughs> like, well, where did you hear that from? And so I had to, again, be very intentional about how we unpacked that conversation. Yeah. But man, something about appropriate versus inappropriate, you know, talk about the judgment and the shame and yeah. the fear and the guilt, all of those things just in that one relatively mm-hmm. simple looking and innocuous looking word yeah. and not so much. Yeah, I think it's a really great practice whenever you feel inclined to use it to say, says who? Right, right. Because most, most chances are it's not going to be you. Mm -hmm. And so then you get to examine like, is that actually true? And um, yeah, that's been a, it's been a real unlearning for me, for sure. This has been such an enjoyable conversation, and I feel like any one of the little rabbit trails that we took, we could easily dig into for an entire another episode. (laughs) Yes, thank you, absolutely, so much. Like, there's just there's so many layers I think to this process, and Mm -hmm. especially to being able to have this kind of conversation in such a way that we can be seen and that we can be vocal and we can own not only who we are now, but who we were then and be able to really recognize that journey. And I'm just really grateful that you would share that with us. Thanks for inviting me to have this conversation. And I love that opportunity to honor who we were Mm -hmm. because I was actually like a really powerful renegade little um, 
young woman trying to figure this all out. And I'm, and I'm grateful that I did. And I'm grateful you did. So thank you for saying yes to taking that journey and giving it voice in a way that other people can hear it and go, Oh my gosh, me too. Because I think that's one of the hardest things being people, being humans, mm-hmm. is we feel like we're the only one. And so to create this place where there's a conversation happening, where it feels okay to say those things and to realize that this is actually probably more universally true than a lot of the things that we've been trapped inside of and um, controlled by. Mm. I think that this is a really important community that you're creating. So thank you for inviting me to be a part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you so much for saying that. Not to turn this into like a thank you war, but the, the idea, I didn't think that anyone else had experienced this. Like I really truly thought that going through whether it was the high school you know idea of being the poster child for the youth group and going on the short-term missions trips and you know i talk about earning all my gold stars like that was such a huge piece of who i was and then continuing that into my young adult world in the ministry and then the the christian university and then the first marriage and all of the different pieces all the different iterations of who i was i was still seeking this unraveling but i didn't know that that's what it was and i thought Mm -hmm. it was just me so this has been an incredibly healing process uh just to be able to say you know what it's not just me and and it is such a universal thing to be able to find each other or i should say find ourselves in each other's stories that has been Mm -hmm. the biggest gift i think to be able to create that so thank you and for those of you who are listening you know what I'm going to ask you to do. I mean, if you want to, you can go rate and review and subscribe and all that fun stuff. And that's great. But that's not really what I am going to ask of you. What I'm going to ask is that you share the conversation with someone else that you think that this would resonate with. Because, you know, it's it's not just us individually. There are so many of us who have had these kinds of experiences and then had the fallout of trying to make sense of it all. So to be able to have a safe place to have that conversation, that's what I would ask of you. You know, be that safe place for someone else, share the conversation with them, and you know, maybe even share your own story because that's part of the healing process. So Sarah, thank you again so much for being a part of this and being here with us. My pleasure. All right, we will see you guys soon. We'll be back again in no time. <laughs> Bye-bye.